Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, how they broke into the industry, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Um, and as you will have heard, Tarek has decided to turn up for this week's introduction. <laughs> I thought we were off last week. I turned up and you've read an episode without me. It's all right. The numbers for last week's episode are the best we've had for a while. So I think I see a pattern here. Um, what did you do with your time off, Derek? I went holiday for a, for a week down down to the borders. It was very nice. It was a nice. first holiday with the little one, so didn't get Not any really near as much sleep as I was hoping. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, well, uh, you, I will let you introduce our great guest for this week. Oh, this week we've got a really exciting guest, uh, Dominic Nolan, we're chatting with, who is the author of the Abigail Boone novels, uh, Past Life and After Dark. But his most recent novel, Vine Street, is a historical thriller based on real events in 1930s Soho, and it has been smashing it since it came out just a few days ago. It's been the, let me double check exactly, Times Crime Book of the Month, which is a pretty, uh, pretty big deal. Yeah, it's been getting rave reviews, and uh, quite rightly, it, it's a really. He talks to us in detail about the idea behind it and the setting, and you know, it sounds like a very complicated novel to have pulled all those threads together. And he actually talks to us about when he first pitched it to his editor, and it clearly wasn't settled <laughs> yeah. in his head as an idea yeah. because the pitch didn't go quite as well. But I won't say. I won't say anything else at this stage because no, Dom does tell us in in the podcast. Yeah, it's a really fun chat with chat with Dominic, and uh, and he also touches on you know the thorny issue of rejection, and you know he's had a number of false starts before he really gets his feet, and and it's something which a lot of people have to struggle with, and it's a it's nice to kind of normalise that part of the process a, a bit. I think yeah. so. It's a, it's a really good chat. It's 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 a really, it's a lot of fun. It's got a good dry sense of humour, Dominic. I think it's fair yeah, to say. Yeah, no, it does. No, it, so yeah, we'll we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook, and then uh, we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome, but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. 
and so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Yes and no. I was very interested in film in my teens and was convinced I was going to be the North London Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> um, but, and and I, I got involved in that for a while. I did some film courses. Messed, and this was sort of pre-HD, pre-digital revolution. So it meant mucking around on 16 millimeter and getting Steinbeck machines to cut them on or doing it on eight millimeter with a pair of scissors and a sellotape, which wasn't exactly cutting edge. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a thing that requires a lot of hard work to get into a lot of working with others on other projects and starting at the yeah. bottom. Um, and I think during that time, I kind of knew I wanted to write, but the idea of writing 300 pages in one go, felt like crossing a desert blindfolded or something like mm -hmm. it just wasn't something that, that I felt um, was sort of in my wheelhouse. Um, and for years I didn't, I mean, I just worked job, job, day jobs. Um, and then I went back to school, back to university to do creative writing purely to get some kind of structure into my writing and, mm -hmm. you know, the sort of mortification of missing deadlines I figured would, uh, inspire me to do more <laughs> writing than I was um and then gradually you start writing longer and longer pieces and then it was like yeah okay I think I can I can have a go at this and I sit down and try and write my first novel and and did that uh, attempt at the first novel once you had something that you were you were happy with presumably you, you started trying to submit it to places and things like that I mean how was that process for you Mine was pretty straightforward because when I was at university, they they kind of did a little anthology every year just with students' work. And it was a, a vice chancellor's prize. And they asked an agent to judge it every year. And I won in my final yeah, year nice. and got to meet Nicola Barr, who's my agent. Um, so I, I didn't actually have to really submit at all. I oh, fantastic. To her and, and she took me on. Well, she actually... <laughs> She gave me a card. They had like an evening, like an event sort of thing. She gave me a card and was like, you know, give me a call, get in contact and we'll sort something out. I thought she meant when I had a book. So like a year later or something, I've sort of turned up with this 600 page monstrosity. Like, hey, remember me? And she was like, no, I meant like call me next week kind of thing. And we'd have sorted it out back then. But, um, but yeah, but she took me on anyway. Um, that was... 2010 maybe i think i met her in 2008 and it took about another year so it was like early 2010 so how much of the book had you written when you was it like a kind of pitch thing or did you show like a sample of the work when you won the no, prize I, mean, I, I was just talking to her that night and i said i'd started something and was you know beavering away wasn't sure how long it would take because i mean the well, my first novel anyway i felt was very much uh, 
an apprenticeship work, I think. I mean, like I've done the creative writing at university, but mm-hmm. you don't learn anywhere near as much doing that as you do writing your first novel. That's where you kind of work out what what kind of habits, what processes work for you and what mm-hmm. don't. Um, and back then I was writing first drafts longhand. Um, I did a couple of novels like that, so I've got huge folders, pages and pages of handwritten. I can't even begin to imagine doing that now. Um, so it was, a, it was a fairly long process writing it and then using the sort of transcribing of it as part of the editorial process as I went along. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, the first novel probably took me a couple of years, all in all. Um, so I was, I was maybe halfway through it when I spoke to Nicola the first time and then delivered it to her later on. Um, that, I mean, it didn't sell. Um, it was a, a historical thing. It was set in the 19th century against the backdrop of the swing riots, which were probably the closest we came to a popular revolution in the last few hundred years in this country. Um, certainly on the back of the French and Belgian sort of overthrowing governments every five minutes back then. Um, it, it sort of had seven narrative lines that it sort of weaved through back. I mean, it was, it was an unmade bed. But the, I mean, there must be enough in there that obviously she hadn't read any of your work when you went to see her a year later with this book. And so there must have been enough in there that she thought, and what you say, it was like 600 pages. So presumably it was chopped yeah. right down. And But she obviously saw something in there that was like, this guy's got, you know, actual writing skill. Yeah, I mean, I think she liked, I mean, it was a short story she'd read of mine in university that, that made her interested in the first place. Um, and I guess she thought I had voice, as people say, um, which is probably evident. In, it's probably too much voice, to be honest, in my first novel. Um, like a lot of early novels, I think it strays into the realm of purple quite often. Um, and shows, I think, you know, and you can't quite get rid of the people you like reading out of your own writing yeah. early on. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you imagine a very, very drunk Cormac McCarthy writing <laughs> English history. It was, that sounds it was pretty good, actually. Kind of gonna... <laughs> um, I went back and looked at some of it not too long ago and cried. <laughs> it, it would take a lot of work I think for me to be happy with it again these days but um, I mean it, it went out and people it wasn't like it just got you know sort of generic refusals left and right there were people interested it went to an acquisitions table at one major publisher um, but it, I mean it probably did need work and it was a little bit odd um, so it would have needed to be somebody massively in love with it I think so to push it and that didn't quite happen um but as a learning experience it was it was invaluable i think and also at that time which even now to some extent the actual publication of the book seemed like some weird abstract thing that was completely disconnected for me from the writing of it like i just love the writing of it. i love sitting at a desk love getting into a story um and it was almost like okay it's not going to sell that's fine i can just do whatever i want for the next one um and that was the process for you know the best part of a decade before past life sold so, so yeah, I was going to bring up past life and what do you think, it, having gone through that experience with your first novel and then presumably there was stuff in between, mm. what do you think it was about past life that that suddenly made it sellable to, to, to these publishers? I think, I mean, my early novels were failures in that what I how I view fiction now, what I think makes a good novel, I, I hadn't done completely back then. I don't think they quite hung together. They didn't cohere, I guess, um, to any larger design. So they were very patchy. And I, we'd submitted, 
four, maybe three or four novels that I hadn't sold. And I was, I'd been writing something for probably two and a half years that I just, it was like the opposite of writer's block. I, I couldn't get away from it. I couldn't quite finish it, but I kept on going back mm -hmm. and rewriting all of it. So I had kind of four different versions of this, of essentially 65,000 words, but also completely different, like just completely different tellings of the same story. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't stop myself doing it. Like I kept on saying, okay, I'll, I'll move on from that. And then it would creep back into my head when I was like 20 pages into something else. And then I'd go back to it and like, no, I'll just rewrite all of this because it's great. It wasn't <laughs> awful. Um, and in the end, I had to delete it, like permanently, just get rid of all of it because the temptation to go back and keep on, I'd, I'd still be there now on like the 17th version of it. Um, and while I was while I was writing the last version of it, I wrote I'd come up with Boone. I don't know where she came from, um, and started to marry the character to different ideas, particularly the memory loss concept, which was interesting to me. Sort of the the nexus of memory and personhood. You know, who are we if we're completely unmoored from our past and don't remember anything? Um, and I felt that was a story, I kind of saw the whole thing. I was like, I can finish that. So I deleted, just scrubbed this other thing off my hard drive, sat down and wrote Past Life in probably just over three months or something. And um, so you'd, 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 am I right in saying then you'd done five books and you'd written them and you'd edited them and you'd put them up to publication, but they hadn't gone anywhere. Yep. So, and then... Um, and then past life came along. I mean, I mean that's that, that that's a really good story of perseverance, and you know, and and knowing that like I, I've still not hit the idea of the, the book that I need to do. And it sounds like when past life came to you, that you know, you, it, 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 was it something about it that you thought this is the one which is going to sell more than others? I didn't at all. I mean, I, I sent it in. Um, Nicola liked it and thought she could sell it, and then did. But I mean, these things are. You only need one person to say yes. I mean, that sounds trite, but only one person ever has said yes to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, past life didn't sell at auction or it wasn't preempted. We had one offer. That was it. So there's only one editor has ever said yes to me. And even he said no before. So you can, I mean, rejection isn't something you can get hung up on. You can't take it personally because it is publishing mm -hmm. and it will be publishing even after you're published, you know? you might not get the reviews you want in newspapers, so you're rejected in that way, or you might not end up on a shortlist you thought you might end up on, you're rejected in that way. Readers might not like it, you get rejected in that way. Or another manuscript you write might get rejected even after you've been published. I mean, rejection is just a daily part of the business. And I think if you, if you let that become the important thing, you're in trouble. You've, you've got to learn to cope with that pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, well, I didn't even use it as fuel. I just, rejection just didn't, didn't seem to bother me um the experience of the early novels not selling to me it was just the what i was doing was writing if it ever got sold that was gravy if it didn't there was always going to be another book or 16 versions of the same book whatever um, <laughs> but yeah but i mean past life was in that way it was almost a, a panic cleanser it was a way i was clearing my own system out and i mean i did i hadn't really written i guess what you'd call straight up crime fiction before that a lot of my early books were period and sort of broad canvas stuff, more like Vine Street, to be honest, than, than the Boone novels. Mm -hmm. um, well, I love crime fiction. So I kind of made the, the deliberate move at that point to write something like what I read, I guess, on a regular basis. Um, 
And just because I could see the whole thing, I thought that seems a relatively straightforward process. I'm going to sit down and write that now. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I mean, the first draft was longer and a little bit baggier. And we sat down, me and my agent, and, and carved probably 20,000 words out of it. Um, yeah, and then that went on submission. And like I said, got a lot of rejections. Um, a lot of, I mean, I, I also find rejections from publishers interesting because most of them will make comments. They won't just say, that's not for me. Yeah. You know, you'll get, I mean, obviously, sometimes that can depend on your agent's relationship with them, but I tended to get comments, which is, is helpful, particularly if you start to get a consensus. But then equally, the rejections around past life had a consensus, but it did sell to a major imprint. So, you know, what, what you make of that? Like I said, a lot of it's timing, a lot of it's editors' opinions and opinions at different times. You know, a lot of it. I mean, my editor had only just moved into his position, which was his first editorial position. So if we'd submitted kind of three months earlier or maybe even three months later, we might have got him at a different time and, you know, then that's up in the air. So yeah. the, the element of luck involved in, in any of it in publishing is, is unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, when you when you came up with this uh this idea for what to do with this character Boone, that, that Abigail Boone that you created, um, was it as a self-contained idea, or did you have? Because obviously she appears in um, your second book as well, uh, Afterlife. Um, what was it? Uh, yeah, did you always have the idea that you would you would be able to revisit and explore further with her? Yes and no, I didn't have a plan. I mean, when I sat down to wrote, write it, it was just that. But there was a lot of stuff, ideas I had that I ended up either not putting in or cutting out from past life. And there was enough of it there where I thought that could be another novel. And, mm -hmm. and through the process of writing past life and then when I'd submitted it, I kind of already put together what could be. I mean, when I knew when we put it on submission that if it sold, more than likely a publisher would say, We'll have another one of those. Yeah, I mean, you usually end up with a at least a two book deal to start with. Um, so I, I put together an idea, which was, I mean, the plan I had was very close to what happened with After Dark. Um, so we were ready to go when we went in to headline sort of first meeting. Yeah, um, but I equally also knew it wasn't something that I was going to run out into a sort of a eight or nine book you know there just mm -hmm. wasn't really the potential for, I mean, there's only so much crazy stuff can happen i think yeah. to one person who's not a detective you know it's one thing of the detective working cases but a sort of a mad nine-fingered woman rustling sheep and stuff <laughs> it, it isn't something that you can you can sort of repeat uh too many times so i knew, I knew it was going to be limited in that way and what sort of research do you do when you're looking at a book like this you know something about amnesia you've got memory loss you've got You've got the real signs there. You know, obviously you want to look at that and make sure you get that right. But how how right do you want to be and how much do you want to box yourself in or leave yourself no room for creative control? Yeah, I mean, I will always go with the creative control over a fact. If a fact is bad, I'll, I'll change it <laughs> myself. Um, the thing with that kind of memory loss is it's so rare and the cases that have been documented have had such a variety of outcomes like some people get their memory back and keep on losing it periodically. Some people never get it back, but are found by people who know them. Some of them never get it back and are never found by anybody who knew them. So 
given the range of possibilities, it, it was basically I, I had that freedom to to more or less play it however I however I wanted, and I was suitably vague in terms of what the cause of the whole thing was medically anyway. Just you know, don't write yourself into a corner. Um, in that respect, I think was was my philosophy. And and obviously um, they were both you know really well reviewed and, and received. I mean, uh, you know, I saw comparisons to. Authors like Rankin, Peter May, Michael Conley. How did that feel after, you know, a decade of of trying to get something published, or or does that not bother you at all? That sort of thing. I think I, I, when you get it from other writers, I think that's valuable. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like your peers reviewing yeah. what you're doing. Um, I mean, in terms of you're not going to get a bad review from the press because they just wouldn't publish a review. You know, you'd have to, you'd have to be a writer of some stature for a newspaper to actually say, yes. this is worth writing a, a bad review of. So mm-hmm. either which way you're winning there, because you're either huge enough to get a bad review or you're just not getting a bad one. Um, and I mean, in terms of Amazon reviews, that's, that's just the wild west, isn't it? <laughs> you don't venture there. Um, that's, that's not, not territory to be in unarmed, I don't think. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's nice getting a newspaper. I mean, you take the sales over reviews any time, though, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs> Come I mean, on, you... house with reviews. <laughs> when you, when you, I want to chat a bit about, about the process that you have when you actually come to write as well. And so, you know, when you sit down to, to put pen to paper, as it was, or words and words on, on the screen now, but, um, you know, do you plan it out in advance? Do you do a lot of plotting or do you just kind of have a rough idea and roll with it? No, I like to have a roadmap. Um, I can't really, structure is important to me, how I'm going to structure the, the book. So I like to have, a, a, I mean, I can ignore it when I get into it, but I'd yeah. like to have a sketched out plan before I start to give myself a vision of what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Also, I think because um, the, way, the way I feel about fiction, the, the things that are important to me when writing it, make having a plan important because i think fiction when it's done well is designed to be more than the sum of its parts and i would find it personally incredibly difficult to do that on the fly um and i think i don't know i get the impression that like pantsers as you might call them they essentially do do planning they just do it after they've done the writing yeah Mm -hmm. rather than before so it's really only a case of when you're doing it and i prefer to do it beforehand um because i don't like doing a good deal of rewriting that's rewriting annoys me. Um, I'd rather do planning than going through a manuscript over and over and over again. So when I actually sit down and write what I call the working draft, um, I may only do like a thousand words a day, but that thousand words will be pretty much what you'll see in the in the book at the end. There won't be that much changed in terms of the actual the actual writing. Any changes I make will tend to be either plot points or something like that, something that I need to finesse. So, so uh, are you are you revising that as you write on that day or is it yeah, something yeah. you so do? The, yeah, the rewriting is baked in basically right. on that okay. day. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll write a couple of paragraphs and then immediately go back through it and make sure it flows and make sure there's a sort of, you know, that cadence you like in your writing that's there and then um, so that I won't have to return to it and do any heavy lifting on that mm-hmm. later on. Um, I'd rather get that out of the way initially. 
So it sounds like by the time, it's maybe a slower process getting through that first draft, but by the time you finish it, that's almost like you've done a few drafts, you know, I mean, as you go type thing. Yeah, that that working draft won't be a million miles away from from what we end up publishing. Um, I mean, it it varies from book to book. Like I said, when I did Past Life, me and my agent probably worked on it before submission for a couple of months. But that's because, you know, you haven't got a deal. So you, you do more work with your agent before it goes out because it has to be uh, properly polished when it goes out to, to editors. And then it really didn't change. You know, the work I did with my editor was pretty, pretty light touch. Um, I mean, it was a luxury because we just ended up working on character stuff. I mean, in fact, the book got a little bit longer at that point, which is unusual. Um, and with After Dark, I had a very detailed plan I put together that I could show my editor and then you know we're all on the same page let's go with that so again once that was done um there wasn't that much to change when we got there it was was just a matter of whittling away very fine details Mm -hmm. um with with Vine Street was an unusual one because I I pitched Vine Street initially um I I handed in after that very very early so we had a big run-in for past life anyway we sold it summer of 17 and then obviously you have your wranglings and your contract work whatever so i ended up going into headlines for the first time in the october and that was when we found out they were publishing march 19 so we had 18 months at that point um, which was a huge luxury for a a debut author because you don't really have to worry about anything you haven't got deadlines because it can't possibly say that do whatever you've got to do and we had proofs then pretty early like the following summer um and I wrote After Dark that next summer. So, you know, I was kind of expected to hand it in at the latest when Past Life was coming out. So kind of like the February, March, I hand it in like end of August, I think, start of September. My thinking being, if I totally screw the pooch on this, I've got enough time to write a whole, yeah. other, whole other book. That's kind of fear <laughs> that goes through your head as a new writer. Um, but it wasn't, it, that came together. So then I had, we had a lot of time to do that. And I was already thinking about, you know, what am I going to do next? And I think at sort of near the end of that year, I was doing some other stuff like paid gigs, but I started to, well, I pitched Vine Street to my editor in the worst possible fashion, the, the worst possible fashion. I'm not big on giving advice, but if there's any advice I could give new or aspiring writers, it's when you do a pitch, at least think about it before you do it. Like I hadn't written anything down. I haven't even arranged the thoughts in my head. I got so excited with the idea that it just started coming out um and it wasn't in any kind of way like if you're going to pitch something to somebody who doesn't know anything about it just blind pitching it you need to start with the basics you know what's it about who does it happening to where is it happening instead i'm there talking about yeah man i want to write it like it's got the same rhythms as ragtime jazz and it's going to be dancing around it. must have sounded <laughs> like a crazy person and it was like a couple of minutes into it before my editor's like wait you're pitching a book here is that what's, what's <laughs> Um, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's a crime book, by the way. There's murders and stuff. It's brilliant. Um, so yeah, it went horribly wrong. And basically, you said, no, let's let's leave that one alone. So then I was kind of left there. Technically, I was out of contract, or at least in terms of having delivered the two books, the mm. two manuscripts uh, for publication. Um, but obviously, you've still got that relationship with your publisher because you know it was going to be almost two years until the paperback of my second book came out. Um, but I just. I couldn't get anything else going. Like I had other ideas for stuff. I just didn't want to write them. 
like I wanted to write mm-hmm. Vine Street. So like a normal person would have sat down, written a pitch that made sense, worked on it with my agent, and then gone back to my editor and said, remember that mad conversation we had before when I was drunk? Um, forget that ever happened. Let's start from scratch. But that would have made too much sense. So basically, I, I did nothing for a long time. And then after that came out, and we immediately went into lockdown, because the world went crazy. And I just thought, I can't sit here doing nothing. So I'm going to write the thing I want to write, mostly out of spite. Um, and if it doesn't come out, it doesn't come out, that's fine. I just need something to do. And that was incredibly liberating, because I enjoyed every second of it. It was just joyous. And it, it took longer than, I mean, like, past life was about three and a half months. And after that, it's probably about the same, probably four months right now, I guess. This, it was nine months, I'd say, just before Christmas. So I started April, ended just before Christmas, Fine Street. But I had been, A, working on it previously when I had pitched it. So I had a lot of prep work done. And it's something I've been thinking about probably since about 2010. When I was writing some of my early novels, I I had notes about this. I was thinking about writing a novel about the London gangs, like the Sabinian white gangs, but the street level guys in between the wars, how that worked for them, particularly those of um, Italian extraction, because when the war started, they were designated sort of enemy citizens or whatever, and some of them were in internment camps. Um, and how all of that worked into the, the race courses and all that kind of um racketeering work that they used to do and then Peaky Blinders came out um, and I hadn't actually started writing anything but I thought that seems too close you know similar territory the gangs the race courses whatever so I left it alone um, but it was always there nagging away over the years to very at one point it was set in Birmingham um, but it was the the jazz that really got my interest. That was what I became fascinated with, this sort of backdrop for the whole thing. Um, you know, this, this sort of the Calypso music was popular at the time in the 20s, um, particularly in like Cardiff and London, where you had big ports and big West Indian populations. Um, but the jazz was just starting to happen. American servicemen during the First War got the seeds of it. Um, and then you had musicians from the West Indies who'd been in New York coming over to London and starting to play jazz. And it was a completely underground scene because the big bands of the day were all whites and none of the bands were, were integrated. So the black musicians basically had to have their own, their own scene going on. So in Cardiff, you had Tiger Bay, Butte Town, um, which was an unusual area. And I mean, ghettoization is and was a common thing in British cities at the time. But in that area in Cardiff, you had like 95% of the black population of the city living in this one small area which is an unusually high concentration um, in that terms. And so they, they had a very strong West Indian identity and, and culture going on there. And a lot of those musicians started to come to London um, to make money, essentially, and playing these dive bars, literally underground clubs. I mean, you know, basements were easy property in the West End um, to get on short leases. Um, none of these places had licenses. They operated on bottle party rules. So they used to change owners and names, you know, every month or so because they'd be raided by the police or they'd just move down the road somewhere else. But this was the the kind of culture I was interested in. It was such an interesting place because there were no boundaries to it. Anybody was welcome there because all of it was illegal in many ways. Um, 
and that was that was kind of the texture behind the story I wanted to tell um, and, and why I moved the, the book to London from Birmingham uh, in the end. And so we've, we've talked around it, but do you want to try and give the listeners a pitch now of, of what Vine Street is? <laughs> I've done it again, yeah, completely. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm uh, sorry, it sounds like a, it's a fascinating setting. It's a really great place to set a story, though. Yeah, just not where you set your pitch. But, <laughs> um <laughs> It's about two men, two police officers uh, who worked Soho in the 30s, um, who become involved in a murder investigation. Um, and this is a real life murder case. There were a series of stranglings in 1935 and 1936 in Soho within a couple of streets of each other. Um, a couple of the women were sex workers, some of them weren't. But the police never got any kind of handle on it. They they couldn't connect the killings, but they also couldn't rule out that they were connected because they were so similar and in such close proximity. Um, and in the middle of it all, um, a Latvian pimp called Max Cassell was murdered. Um, his murder they solved. He was killed by his, his business partner, essentially. Um, and all of this to me seemed there was the potential to connect all of this. Yeah. But you could see why the police maybe thought it was all connected, either by one killer or through business connections. Um, the first victim was also of, of Russian stock. She'd moved to France and then moved into England. There was, there was a big uh, people trafficking operation back then from the First World War onwards. Like during the First War, you had a lot of uh, Belgian civilians coming here, fleeing the German invasion. And more women than men, because the men were in the army fighting the Germans. The women fled. And as happens with a lot of immigrant populations, you know, they end up in a country, you might not speak the language, you gravitate towards a bigger city and you end up in sex work because what else are you gonna do? And it proved popular with local punters who it turned out liked an accent. So then you would get women putting on accents or women from other parts of particularly more Eastern areas, uh, Poland or, or Russia, coming over and pretending to be French. This was sort of a strange thing that happened in the thirties and so on. Um, and there were a lot of them. Um, so again, the connections were there. You know, you've got a, a Latvian Russian pimp who was involved in bringing women into the country through France. You've got a Russian woman who'd lived in France who's killed. The brother also lived in London. He's uh, part of the Russian diaspora over here. So it was, you know, it seemed authentic enough to be able to try and connect them into a murder story, uh, a fictional one out of the historical detail um, and set in this fantastic place in Soho. And in the book, the story carries on. It goes on through the war and the aftermath with, a, I mean, the city was, was pretty wrecked, although Soho escaped not too bad in the end because there was no strategic target um, in that part of London. Um, and eventually moves on to the 60s, um, moves through Cardiff um, and Birmingham, the Barna Road area. And, and also the Cotswolds, which I think probably at any given time is where the true dark monsters of the country reside. Um, and eventually it all ties up um, just at the turn of the 21st century, sort of seven decades after it begins. So, I mean, with, with that, I mean, you clearly did a lot of research pulling all these different threads together to create this fictional story. When you're doing that, how restricted do you feel by the, the, the actual facts? Or is it, as you said before, you'll take what works and, and throw away the rest if it 
makes your story you know, better. You do the research and make sure your research is, is good. You know, you do wide reading on it because the better you know the actual history, then the freer you are to move around in your subject. Mm -hmm. When it actually comes to the writing of it, I'm not one of those novelists who will uh, completely respect chronology. I'm not that. I mean, I know that I think you find your own method when you do it. So yeah. Hilary Mantle will, you know, say that she what she strives after is an almost complete fidelity. She says fidelity to history, but I think she means fidelity to chronology because yeah. mm -hmm. history isn't fact. No, history is narrative. Exactly, yeah. So for me, historians, the difference between historians and novelists is novelists will be open about the fact they're lying to you. Um, whereas <laughs> historians are a little more, they're probably more um, responsible in their lives, but it, it's still a narrative. You know, they, they project things, they choose what sources they're going to follow. There are agendas in it. You know, I mean, you kind yeah. of have the establishment history that you read in your textbooks at school, which tends to be conservative. And then if you stray away from that, you're automatically called a Marxist historian for some extraordinary reason. Um, so all of that is a narrative. There isn't that much difference in the writing of it other than the historian has to respect time and chronology. And for me, time is something to be smashed to bits and destroyed by a novelist. You can do what you like with it. And I like moving back and forward. I like showing the future first. Yeah. Hiding things in the past, revealing them in the future and vice versa. Um, which is something that a historian can't really do without being disingenuous. Um, so, yeah. So do the research, learn the history. And then that gives you the flexibility to do what you want in terms of your actual story, your story, as opposed to his story. And you, you said that the books that you'd worked on before past lives past life um that they, they were kind of historical more historical fiction than crime so was this was this a kind of return to maybe the style of books that you started writing back at the start and bringing that those skill set but in but with all you'd learned in the past two books yeah certainly i think they i guess a blending of the two really i mean it is obviously crime fiction um but the the manner in which i did it is closer to the, the earlier books, which were bigger and I guess slightly more ambitious in scope and the way the narratives were structured, either moving back and forward in time or between multiple characters and, and perspectives. Um, I mean, at one point I was <laughs> I was going to attempt to write Vine Street, not from the perspective of the two main characters, Leon Geats and Mark Sarr, mm. but rather whoever they were in the scene with at any given time I was going to write from their perspectives. But to be honest, it was too... I think that's a book to write if you're safely in the middle of a contract and you know the book's going to come out. Yeah. Or you've <laughs> got to convince somebody to... Uh, particularly when they've already said no once, just that's not going to help you get them to say yes the second time. Um, so I, I went... In many ways, the narrative is a fairly straightforward murder mystery narrative. Um, but I, I wanted it to have that sort of Know, like a dreamlike quality as it moved through time and that's out on the 11th of november yeah, is that right 11th, 11th, yeah. Thanks. assuming we still have you know a distribution network and trucks and drivers and whatnot <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's up for debate at the moment but um and and i also want to ask you uh, you also as well, as well as your novels you you've written some short stories you were nominated for the cwa uh, 2021 short story award it, it is that something you've always done? And do you find it a sort of freeing process to to dabble in that 
I haven't written a story in years. I mean, you write them at university, um, and it was a you know a story that got my agent interested. To be honest, that was probably the last short story I'd written before I wrote Daddy Dearest, right. which was the one that was was nominated. Um, in fact, that that was. I, I do find it particularly liberating because I think I, I, you, I don't have to plan a short story in the same way I plan a novel. Yeah. So where I'm very serious about the designing of the novel in terms of it being a gestalt, you know, like you want, it's not just an assemblage of things. It has to be more than the things you're assembling. Mm-hmm. So I, I need a design in order to do that effectively. A short story you can pretty much keep in your mind's eye all at once. So, and I can start writing it I can write the end or I can write a bit in the middle and, you know, I can just start patching around. I basically just have a rough draft that I add bits to every day when I'm doing it. Um, so in that way, it's freeing because it's it's different. It's like a little holiday away from the other writing you do. Um, and also timing wise, that first one, that came just before I started to write Vine Street. So I'd been in this period where I wasn't really writing and I was a bit glum about my writing in general. And this came up. Well, everybody works in it knows that you know we're all mates we came up with the idea together so then it just seemed like a free hit you know just write something whatever you, you find yourself wanting to write about because nobody's there to say no you can't do that um yeah so in that respect it was exciting something new um and they they've done okay they, they've done pretty well um which is good because you know we don't get anything out of it but it raises money for charity which was the point in the first place um but creatively yeah it is a sort of a, a little free space that we can be slightly more cavalier in and is it something you would like to you know that kind of freedom and try new things would you want to go into scripts or to graphic novels is there anything else you'd like to, to branch into i mean the scripts maybe simply because like i said i always had that interest in film previously and mm. i guess cinema was my first love in that way because i guess the yeah, when I was sort of like from eight onwards, I didn't really read a lot of fiction. Like I'd, I'd read well pretty early. My dad taught me sort of before we went to school. So at school, they give you the reading, you zip through it and they're like, okay, we can sit him in the corner with whatever. And then when I got to a certain age, I guess most of my reading was non-fiction, like boys stuck in you know, dinosaurs, airplanes, space, whatever. But I shied away from fiction. And then when you're in secondary school, you kind of get, you know, prescribed writing in English or whatever, which is annoying. Um, so writing, reading wasn't necessarily something that I enjoyed a great deal. Um, probably until I was like 16, 17. Um, but in that time, my love for film had grown. So, but equally, it, it's such a different, it's such a different art form. I don't, I don't know. I enjoy the sort of megalomaniac in me, I suppose, enjoys the complete control of the novel. So you haven't got to write a script yeah. and then hand it over to somebody else. You might do something completely different or not yeah. what you saw in your mind's eye when you, when you wrote yeah, it. Yeah, totally. You, you know, the responsibility is entirely on you uh, for the final outcome of it. Yeah, is that, we chat before we've said similar stuff about that, that, you know, you do a book and it can be just you and at the end of it, you've got a book that is complete and it's done and that's, if that's all it ever is, that's a whole story right there and someone can read it and that's it. Whereas if the, as you say, with the script, it's, you pass it off and who knows yeah, what's going to happen. It's far to more it. of a collaborative yeah, art totally. form cinema completely. Yeah. And so what... Uh, have you got next after Vine Street? Are you working on something just now? Because I'm in the planning stages of, of something. Um, I want to stay in London, in crime. The 50s is what I'm looking at. So 
know, you've got Rackman, you've got race riots, you've got robberies, there's a lot going on there. Um, so I want to work it in the same way that I worked Vine Street, use real events, real people, um, mm -hmm. and then bend them into the story I want to tell. Thanks, Clive. Did you ever go back to Boone? Would you write another book in that series, or is that kind of finished I mean, for you I, now? I did have, I did sketch out a third one that we could have done that would have been it. Um, I'm glad now I didn't do it because I'm quite fond of Boone as much as I like damaging her quite badly. <laughs> but the plan I had for the third one was probably excessive. Um, I'm not sure how happy I would have been about it afterwards, but um, there's the, the potentials there. She's always there roaming around on her little missions. <laughs> What was the last book that you read? The last one I read was Colson Whitehead's Harlem Shuffle. Oh, um, nice. Which is very, very good. Um, actually, I think crime suits him a lot. I wouldn't be surprised to see him returning to the form because, he, I mean, he's one of those novelists I've always thought who, who on a sociological level, was very interesting. He writes about systems and, and the sort of institutions that, that bind yeah. people very well. I think uh, Ray Carney, the main character in this, is probably my favourite character I've read in any of his books. Seems far more, far more human in many ways. Um, and I think you, you get the impression Whitehead likes him a lot as well. Mm -hmm. The way he uses him, and I mean, it is a, it is crime fiction. It's, it's being positioned as a heist novel, which I mean, there is a heist in it, but you know, it's not per se a heist novel. I think it's more like, um, I mean, the main character is the fence, so he's kind of the guy that's the glue between. Yeah the criminal world and the mm -hmm. city. And it, it's more of a story about New York and particularly Harlem and its relationship to downtown and how certain areas of the city are changing, um, culminating in the 64 riots, um, which came off the back of a young black man being murdered by the police. So not that much changed in, in sort of five, six decades. Um, but yeah, I mean, his writing was you know, fantastic. Yeah, no, I've, I've not read that one yet, but I loved a... Uh, uh, Underground Railroad and Nickel, mm. Nickel Boys as well. They were both brilliant. So, Fantastic yeah, adaptation of that as well, the, the Amazon TV show. Yeah, the, uh, the adaptation of uh, Underground Railroad is amazing as well. I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've got both those books on my pile to read and I've not yet read them, but I will because I've heard nothing but good things from Mark about them. Well worth, well worth digging into, yeah. Uh, I'm reading Turanese at the moment. Suzanne. Oh, oh, yeah. Amazing. Uh, another good. one on my list to, to yeah, read I'm as well. Yeah. Through it. I mean, it's a pretty I, short read, but... Uh, yeah, well, I've... I've I had always meant to, and I've just read Jonathan Strange. Um, mm. uh, and uh, yeah, I loved it. So it's magical, absolutely magical. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to diving into Piranesi as well, which is obviously very different in length. <laughs> if, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what about the last film that you watched? What was the last film I watched? Um, I I said it was the Brothers Rico, which is an old fifties noir by Phil Carlson. Okay. Um, because I picked up um, Indicator, the Blu-ray label, sort of a boutique label. They're, they're reissuing all the old Columbia film noirs nice. in box sets. Um, and that was the final one in their latest box set I watched the other day. I love old noirs, even ropey ones. I'll sit there and watch all of them. Um, but yeah, Brothers Rico is pretty good, Richard Conte. Um, actually from a, a short novel by Simenon, um, 
when he'd moved to America for a short while, he actually wrote some novels, still in French, but he set them in in America and uh, the studio bought the rights to it and then adapted. It's slightly different to the novel, but it's, um, yeah, good. Nice. And uh, what's the last TV show that you've watched or are watching? I am watching Made on Netflix. Oh, yeah, yeah. Margaret Polly, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. I can't quite work out why it isn't everywhere. It should be what everybody's watching. Um, she's amazing. Her mum's in it as well. She's Andy McDowell's daughter. All right. Andy okay. McDowell plays her mother in it. All um, right, okay. Having a lot more fun than I think she had in some of the 90s rom-coms. Where she <laughs> I was, I've not seen her for about 30 years or something, yeah. I think that happens with actresses, don't it? They get to 40 and Hollywood are like, no, you're not allowed to work anymore now. You yeah. come back to us when you're like 60 totally. and make you the crazy so old woman in something. Yeah, yeah. that's a pretty raw um, deal with it. <laughs> yeah, we, we've only got one role a year and Meryl Streep's getting that. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to wait, I'm afraid. But, um, yeah, she, she's embracing it with both hands. She's she's out of control in it. But Margaret Quali, I mean, she's, I think Margaret Quali's 26, but everything I see her in, she just gets better and better. Yeah, she is great. The nice but, guys, like yeah. small roles like that. Or, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's absolutely fantastic. Nice. She's uh, mesmerising well, in this particularly. She plays like a a young mother who's trying to leave her abusive husband. She's got a three-year-old. Um, this is up in like Washington State, like the Pacific uh, Northwest. And she, she well, essentially she's homeless. So she's living in poverty. She's trying to navigate the benefit system in America, which makes ours look like the most generous thing in the world. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's not. You know, it never sort of descends into poverty porn. It's, the story is well thought out, um, and the cast uniformly is is fantastic. Oh, fantastic, yeah. I need to watch that. I've, I've heard good things about that as well. That's just not enough time today for these books and TV shows. To <laughs> <watch>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the very, very last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. So um, I always say there's no right answer apart from one. But the first one is we'll go for um, Chandler or Elroy. Lord. I would say I prefer Chandler, but Elroy is probably closer to maybe what I do, particularly in Vine Street. That's sort of a cult crime history of a city type mm-hmm. thing. Um, and maybe I'll say Elroy because I don't think I could ever be as good a writer as Chandler, whereas I don't think Elroy quite matches up to his own estimation sometimes. <laughs> uh, TV or cinema? I mean, in, in terms of form, cinema, but I like watching it on a TV because being in a room with 100 other people with their phones on yeah. is enough to drive somebody homicidal. Yeah, I have to say, I, um, I'm getting worse as I get older. I love going to the cinema, but I cannot stand when people have their phones on or talking. Or, yeah. and see, I'm going to see just have an film. empty cinema, that'd be great. That'd be yeah. perfect. That's a dream, yeah, exactly. I'm going to see a film years ago and someone had an apple, and eating, was eating an apple. It's so loud and it's incredibly rude. I think it probably, it's probably got worse through the pandemic because everyone's used to just watching stuff at home and taking yep. that bad habits in cinema. Thing. But anyway, yeah. I put my random cinema stuff. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Night Owl. I, mornings are not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fancy restaurant or takeaway? Takeaway, I think. I mean, I, I, I like cooking, so I'll, I'll cook at home too, but I like the comfort of being at home I think once you've mm. had a meal particularly with friends you haven't got to move anywhere afterwards or yep. get yourself home you're already there and there's a sofa nearby <laughs> and a food um, with wine and beer the last one uh, real book or ebook? Oh, real book oh, unfortunately and, that was I, a great I mean, 
yeah i don't i will read like you get sent proof sometimes digitally um, yeah. although i find myself reading them this is probably even worse on my phone <laughs> a kindle like a kindle seems to be like another pet you've got to look after like is the battery charged if i put things on it i just can't be bothered with it whereas my phone's always in my pocket yeah, yeah. so if i can i'll actually try and get the um the typeset pdf as opposed to sort of a mobi or a, a an yeah. ebook file um so i can see how it looks on the page and read it on a device um but i, I would always rather have the physical book fair enough but that well, i don't commute you know what i mean i work at my desk so if i was if i had a, a job and had to roam around the place i suspect my views may change simply because you can carry around a thousand books you know on your kindle and that's that's easy and i mean certainly if you work in publishing editors and agents swear by them because you know what would you do with all those manuscripts yeah it was absolutely. on paper you, you I mean, it sounds to me like what, what i'm hearing from you now is sounds to me like ebooks probably are the winner but you know <laughs> i think you, in terms of business they i mean I, I don't use them but in terms of business i can answer i tell you i was listening to um a podcast with miranda Jewess at viper who i've worked with because she works with us on the um the anthologies and she made an interesting point in that she she kind of Chinese walls her uh, her reading. So she reads submissions for Viper on her Kindle. But the books she reads for fun, she always gets the physical. Oh, OK. okay. So that the actual experience is is kind of different. That so makes sense. Yeah. So the important, the important stuff she really needs to focus on and, you know, really has to get to. As picture. you may have guessed, an e-book. a big e-book advocate. <laughs> so, yeah. I nailed, I, I made a throwaway copy. I nailed my, my colours to the mast uh, on this topic about a year ago. And I'm, I'm trapped in this character <laughs> now that I have to I have to always fight for e-books. <laughs> I do, but I do fear they are wonderful things. <laughs> Oh, that was that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that chat with Dom. And like a lot of other folk have said before, interesting point about you know you're writing a historical fiction, pick a point and play with it a little bit, and it's you know, have that confidence to have a bit of freedom once you've done enough research to know what yeah. you can bend. I think I think that's right. I think it, the research is this, it's kind of similar to what Stuart Turton was saying earlier. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, is you know you need to know everything, but then you can sort of throw out what you want because you know yeah. what you can safely throw out and and what you have yeah. to keep in kind of a thing. So, um, yeah, no, I highly recommend picking up Vine Street. Um, it is getting all the rave reviews, probably be up for awards and stuff. Oh, for think. sure, I think, yeah, definitely. So definitely worth checking that one out. So thanks very much uh, to Dominic for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate that. And uh, next week we've got another great guest. Oh, yeah, we do indeed. The, the string of hits continues this season. We are chatting with Katrina Ward next week, who um, is perhaps best known at the moment for her kind of gothic horror novel, The Last House on Needless Street, which has been just everywhere mm-hmm. the last few months. It's, and rightly so, it's a fantastic um, horror crime novel. And it's, I believe it's been made into a movie by Andy Serkis's company. Oh, wow. So it's very exciting. And yeah. she's got a new book, Sundial, out next year. So it's, it's a lot of stuff happening there. It's very, very exciting for her. Yeah, so uh, do join us for that episode. Um, before we go, I will ask, as usual, if you have if you enjoyed the episode, if you ha- have a couple of seconds, if you could give us a rating and even a review on Apple Podcasts, 
we had a very nice review this week. We did have a nice review. It was lovely. I have to thank Mum for that. I think we were called Quietly Inspirational. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, right. Quietly Inspirational. Oh, wonderful. That's whoever that was. Thank you very much. Very kind of you to say. I'm pretty sure they meant the guests, not us. But but anyway. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, if if you could do that, that would be great because it really helps us stay in the charts and that helps us continue to get great guests on that you can listen to. And of course, if anybody wants to get in touch, they can always send us an email to uh, podcast at rightgear.co.uk or send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later.